Welcome to Up for Debate, a podcast where our expert panel discusses some of the topical, often debated, and sometimes controversial subjects in healthcare and medicine. Through our open discussion, physicians, nurses, and medical professionals sit down to give their honest perspectives and opinions on healthcare topics we hear about or see in our everyday lives in order to provide you with the easy to digest information on some of the more complex issues. This is Up for Debate. Despite the fact that everyone dies, most people, myself included, avoid discussing end-of-life care for themselves or a loved one. In an interview for Reader's Digest, the Vice President of Communications for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, John Radcliffe, said people often put more thought into preparing for the family vacation, the transportation, the timing, the meals, than planning for the end-of-life experience we will all have. So while this topic may be uncomfortable to consider and discuss, there are practical considerations to be dealt with for those left behind. I'm lucky today to be joined by three experts who can help shed some light on this topic and perhaps inspire our listeners to start discussing their end-of-life choices. Joining me today is Ellen Davis, a doctor of nursing practice and a board-certified advanced practice nurse in acute care and hospice and palliative care. Ellen is the Palliative Care Program Coordinator at Bayshore Medical Center. Sarah Owen, a certified critical care registered nurse and is currently pursuing her doctoral degree in acute care. Sarah works in the intensive care unit at Raritan Bay Medical Center in Perth Amboy. And Jamie Pona, she's a registered nurse with the ICU at Raritan Bay in Oldbridge, all of which are part of Hackensack Meridian Health, and they're here to discuss end-of-life decisions. But before we dive into the deep end with end-of-life decisions, Ellen, can you explain what palliative care is? Palliative care is a specialty service. Uh, It's the same as going to see a pulmonologist, a lung specialist, or a kidney specialist. And the palliative care specialists um, are an extra layer of support for the family. We deal with chronic, serious illness. We help families deal with that. It's not just symptom management, it's also a layer of emotional support and um, resource support. We help uh, identify resources that are available to the families and the patient and mobilize those resources for them so that they can stay home longer, age in place, um, have their symptoms better managed. And we work in accordance with their primary care provider or their specialists so that nobody is working in a silo and everybody has the, um, the bigger picture of the patient in mind. And Ellen, when can or should palliative care be used during a patient's treatment? So typically, if somebody's serious illness trajectory means that they have a lifespan of two years or less, uh, then the palliative care team can be of the most help. The later the time, the later the palliative care team is engaged, you know, at the end of life, we can certainly manage end of life care, but we can have the most effect, most positive effect in symptom management and support for the family um, about two years or so when they've been diagnosed uh, with a serious illness and we know that that illness path is going to lead to eventual death. Okay, and could you explain a little bit for the, the listeners here what the difference is between palliative care and hospice care and how they work together? So hospice care is strictly end of life care. You have less than six months to live, And there's very clear Medicare guidelines about who qualifies for hospice. Um, And uh, many patients, obviously terminally ill patients with cancer, 
qualify for hospice if they're not receiving aggressive treatment. The palliative care team would be helpful to this patient and family if they are still receiving treatment. So if, they're, if they have stage four lung cancer and they don't want hospice yet, they want to continue with immunotherapy, they want to continue with chemotherapy or whatever it may be, the palliative care team can have the most impact with them. If they have decided to stop treatment, they don't want to go back to the hospital anymore, nothing's helping them feel better, medical care isn't curing them then the hospice team is most effective in managing their symptoms. Great, thank you for helping us understand what palliative care is better, Ellen. I feel like most people, especially myself, I, I never knew the term before I started working here. So it's definitely very interesting to know the difference between what palliative care is and hospice care. And now we all know that it can be very shocking and emotional to learn that a loved one is dying. Sarah, Jamie, being ICU nurses, you tend to treat more critically ill patients than a lot of other healthcare professionals. When a family or a patient realizes that they're terminal, meaning that they're, they're dying, that unfortunately they won't be here much longer, what are some of the major concerns that they end up having that they bring to your attention? I think the hardest part is when that patient hadn't 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 had anything written down first and you see the family kind of trying to struggle with what they thought that patient might have wanted and sometimes if there's a multitude of siblings and no one was designated as the primary person to make decisions sometimes the decisions that are being made aren't agreed upon and sometimes you can see families you know whether it's arguing or um, kind of in turmoil as to what they should decide. I think if they had uh, written it out in the beginning, it would be a lot easier for the family to decide as to what to do. Jamie, do you have anything to add? I wholeheartedly agree when there's a lot of people involved and not knowing the direction of care that the patient wanted um, and not being able to give their thoughts, opinions, their beliefs, their morals, everything that they've gone through um, definitely makes the situation much more difficult. Ellen, any of the patients that you happen to be a part of the treatment plan for, do you happen to come across this situation as well where you're still finding people don't have uh, a document that states how they want their care to be handled? Absolutely. We see families all the time in turmoil in the ICU. Um, they've been estranged and now they're suddenly back together. They've only been talking for the past month or even ones who see their loved ones every day and they've never discussed what they want at the end of life. And I think that part of that is denial that we all die, which we all will one day, each and every one of us. There is no cure for death. And I think the other part is that the the older, the loved one, so the grandparent or the parent, they don't want to think about how sick they could become. They don't want to think about leaving their loved ones, and they don't want to think about becoming a burden on their families, rather than being almost proactive, where you're saying, I'm not going to be a burden. I'm not going to um, cause my family any turmoil. This is what I want. I want X, Y, and Z. And even if people don't put something in writing, we as the palliative team are happy even if they've had that discussion because then that takes the onus off of the family feeling like they're making a decision about life or death when if the the person in question the patient has made that decision themselves then it's merely a matter of upholding their decision so there's no guilt if they die there's no guilt if they survive and they have you know they're in a coma or something else it was grandma's decision to do this care and we're going to honor it one way or another 
Uh, and then they have much less guilt, much less survivor guilt going forward. And you happen to mention uh, that there are ways to help alleviate some of the stress that occurs when a patient becomes terminal or can't make the decision on their own as far as their health care goes. What should people do to prepare in case they do become terminal to ensure that their Medicare is their medical care is done according to their wishes and to make it easier on those loved ones left behind? I think early intervention is the biggest thing. Um, when patients come into the hospital, um, we have a wonderful team that gets involved as soon as we realize that the situation might arise that we need assistance with um, their direction of care. So the early intervention of our palliative care team, the early intervention of talking about a pulse, things that the family and the patient can you know, decide on together so they can all be coherent in what their plan is for, again, grandma, whoever it is that they're trying to make decisions with and for. I think another thing that makes it difficult is that the conversation is uncomfortable. And we have uncomfortable conversations about a lot of other things, whether it's finances or, you know, family issues. And, you know, a long time ago, even cancer alone was something hard to talk about. People would call it the big C. And then now years later, we have marches and we have ribbons, you know, and I think something like this, an advanced directive should be something that should be spoken about at, you know, family gatherings or maybe not family gatherings, but, you know, like uh, in intimate settings that you would discuss anything else at. I agree with you both on that. Um, I think that having these discussions when the person is well and of sound mind that they understand the consequences of their decisions, that's the key time to have these discussions and to put something in writing if, you, if you're able um, the time when the person is arriving to the emergency room and has to go on a ventilator because they cannot breathe, that is not the time to be having a discussion about whether or not they want this advanced technology. And we are so skilled um, with our medical care in the United States and with our technology. Uh, we can keep people alive for a very long time, but it doesn't mean that they'll have quality of life. And just because we have the technology doesn't always mean that we should use it. You know, if grandma would not be happy living in a nursing home with the tracheostomy, a hole in her neck, connected to life support, a feeding tube in her belly, on dialysis, then we shouldn't do that for her or to her. Yeah. And then just to follow up with Ellen, what Ellen is saying is that at least you've had the conversation in the beginning because when you're critically ill or you're in a stressful situation, your your brain is fogged and you can't really make decisions that you want to make on your own. And the conversation could just be started with, hey, have you thought about this? You don't have to finish the conversation at that moment. Maybe your your mom or dad or even your friend just goes home and thinks about it. And then, you know, maybe I'll come back and, you know, this is what I want. And then say you come to find out that grandma would want, you know, I would want a feeding tube because maybe I'll get better and that's okay. It's just you'll know that's what she wants and it's not that you did something against against her wishes. And Sarah, I think you were the one who mentioned uh, about a advanced healthcare directive uh, which is also called a, a living will. Can you guys explain what that is for anyone who isn't aware of what that document is and what it means? A living will is a legal document that um, sometimes is crafted by a lawyer, but you can also pick up 
an advanced directive kit from Staples for you know under twenty dollars, uh, or you can even just write something down yourself on a piece of paper. And it's th- it is your wishes in writing. So it states specifically, what do you want to do if your heart stops? What do you want the medical team to do? What do you want the medical team to do if you stop breathing but your heart is still beating? What do you want the medical team to do if you cannot eat or drink by mouth anymore? And that's usually if somebody's in a coma or vegetative state. So those are the main wishes, and that's what's covered in the POLST document, P-O-L-S-T, Provider Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, which is uh, was created by Governor Christie and is signed by a nurse practitioner or a physician, and I believe the state just approved for physician's assistance to sign it too. And so it takes that um, it takes the document from uh, the legal framework and makes it operationalizes it makes it an order makes it a medical order so that paramedics can honor it and uh, the nursing homes can honor it and it's not just a nice document to have to know what grandma wanted but now we can actually honor her wishes because we already have that medical order in place. Some people will designate in a living will or in in their note a, a healthcare proxy or agent. Can you explain to me, uh, you know, what the responsibilities of this person is? And there are times when people pick those that are closest to them, their spouse or um, a very, very close family member. And sometimes they pick someone who's close to them, but is not the closest person. Can you give a little insight into why people make those decisions? I think one thing you're actually you're absolutely right they'll pick someone who's very very close and sometimes you see they'll pick someone who's not as close and sometimes what i found is that the person that's not the closest you know maybe a little bit distant more relevant that was able to really articulate what that patient wanted was sometimes the better choice because then that one that's very very close has a very difficult time you know fulfilling that person's wishes you mean because they're more emotional and connected? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And the person who's a little bit farther away in the family tree may be able to think more rationally yes, at the time. Yes, ab- absolutely. And when, they're, when they are nominated as a healthcare uh, agent, what do they have to do? Are they the person who's in charge of that document and following exactly what that person wished? Um, if there isn't a document but it just names them, what kind of responsibilities does that person have? that our listeners should be aware of when they do nominate someone to be their healthcare proxy? The, the healthcare proxy or healthcare agent um, should be acting upon that person's behalf. So they're expected to make the decisions that that person would make if they were able to make their own decisions at that time. So taking their wishes. And uh, it, is, it is a challenge to remove that emotion from the discussion. Um, and, uh, and sometimes it's difficult to to think about what that person may have wanted. So even if there's not something in writing, uh, you know, the the state and, you know, government and Hackensack Meridian has a listing of who can make decisions on behalf of the patient if there's nothing in writing. So, you know, it would go to a spouse and siblings, and, and there's a whole process to go through. But that person, if they have never had that discussion, there, we talk through what would that person have been, what would they say if they were able to see the situation, and how did they live their life? Did they live their life never going to the physician's office, never going to a doctor, refusing to take any medicines, showing that they didn't want advanced medical care, or did they live their life where, you know, they're going to the doctor every month, and, and they want this advanced medical care because they want to be healthy and live longer? How did they live their lives? So, in their actions, sometimes we're able to derive what that person may have wanted. And the, the healthcare agent is the one 
to work with the medical team to figure that out. You know, it's not always easy to talk about this with your family or your loved ones, but why is it so important to discuss this with even a medical professional or anyone within your life that may need to know beforehand? Um, there was actually a quote that I came across from Rebecca Sardor of the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, who said to Rutgers Health, as I like to say, the form is only as good as the conversation and the shared understanding that goes along with it. Some people do fill out these forms with families or lawyers, and then the forms sit in the dusty recesses of a back drawer, and they're not available or shared with family and friends, especially before they're needed. Personally, that impacted me a lot, because I, I do have a living will, but besides my husband, no one else knows about it. No one's been discussed with what I personally would like. Have you guys ever come across that where you know, that there is someone who has it, or um, you know, maybe they had the conversation, and because of that, the family and the loved ones were alleviated of some of the stress that comes along with someone who's, who's going to be passing? I mean, just along the lines of speaking with your healthcare provider, I recently had a patient who was an end-stage renal patient. She had been on dialysis. So she, she actually was a nurse before, you know, being a patient, as we all will be one day. But uh, she, every time she saw a nephrologist, she's like, this is what I want. I don't, you know, when you know that I'm not going to do well, I, I don't want to be intubated. I don't want anything, you know, stop the dialysis. And, you know, she came into our ICU and, we all kind of knew that, you know, dialysis wasn't going to help anymore, and she knew too, and it was so, I don't know if easy is the right word, but it was easy on the family to know that that's what she wanted, and she was very comfortable, and she, you know, she ended up passing away, but it was very peaceful the way she wanted it to be. It wasn't as if we were going these extraordinary measures to keep her alive, because I think Ellen had brought up quality of life, and people, I feel, get misconceived about quality versus quantity and you know quantity of life doesn't necessarily mean that those certain amount of days are going to be any better than if you had not done extraordinary interventions. In our family we're a medical family so you can only imagine what our dinner table conversations are like with our children for many years and when they were little we used to say don't call me unless there's blood but they understand uh, very clearly what our medical wishes are so our living wills are very clear because again we're medical people. And in mine, uh, my living will, I wrote specifically, if I do not have the cognitive ability, meaning being awake and aware, to interact with my environment, that is what I consider quality of life and I do not want to live. So do not keep me alive if I'm in a vegetative state. And if I cannot care for myself, that means going to the bathroom myself, feeding myself, dressing myself. These are all very basic things that we don't think of. Many different illnesses can cause us to lose the ability to perform these functions. And if we don't consider what, mean, what our life means to us and what is important to our lives, then the time will come and we'll lose these abilities and, and our families won't have any idea of what they're supposed to do to help us. I think one thing to add to what Ellen said also about, you know, she kind of just shared with us what, what her wishes would be. And, you know, I'm 29 and I also have my own living will. But I think one thing that people need to keep in mind is that, you know, your wishes might be different than mine and that's okay. And I think sometimes people's own opinions get mixed in and they might not agree with what grandpa wants or even their sister wants. And I could see arguments actually happening in my own family because I'm actually one of the only two medical people in my very large family. So 
Um, a lot of times they don't agree what my opinion is, and that's okay, and it's okay if I don't agree with what theirs is, but as long as it's what they want at the time. And that's a very good point, Sarah, that you know, if somebody has written something down, they've taken the time to talk about it and put it in writing, their wishes really should be honored. Even if they give their health care agent the, uh, the option of changing their wishes or making decisions for them that maybe aren't specified on that paper, um, honoring their wishes is the most important thing, even if you don't agree with them. That's a very important point. Yeah, that's a very wonderful point. And um, one thing that I found absolutely fascinating when I was educating myself on on this discussion that we're having today. I found a study um, from 2017 that was published by Health Affairs and they studied almost 800,000 people in the US. But they found that only a third of that number had completed an advanced directive or had put together some sort of information about how they wanted to be cared for. And they also found that it didn't really matter if you had a chronic illness or if you were a healthy adult, because in each of these patient categories, it was still only about a third of the patients that were surveyed that actually had something prepared. And we've talked about you know, the importance of preparing, and we've focused a little bit more on those that know that they're going to, to pass. But what do you guys have to say to anyone who's maybe not suffering from a chronic or a terminal illness? When is a good time to start handling these decisions and start having these discussions? Tonight at dinner, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Tonight, yeah. tomorrow morning, yeah. every day. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a very like, blunt person, and I don't, as uncomfortable as things are, I've, I really have no problem asking anybody. You know, every time I see my grandpa, like we see him like once every couple, just making sure, is this, is this what you want? My, even my fiance, you know, it was an uncomfortable, com- uncomfortable conversation, but I think he's used to these uncomfortable conversations at this point because I see it every day. But for the people that don't see it every day and you're watching a movie and you see something happen on the movie that you're like, oh my God, that, that looks awful. I don't, I don't want that to happen to me. Maybe segue that into that, that difficult conversation after the movie's over. I think nowadays, every time we wake up, we never know what's going to happen. And not knowing what's going to happen every day of our lives puts you in that perspective of talk tonight, make the decisions, again, even if it's just something verbal, written down. Um, And also, too, um, when you see your physicians, even if you are healthy, you know, we try to go for our annuals, talk about it there, have something in writing. Again, you don't want to get into the hospital, but even if you go into the hospital for something small, minute, something uh, cut on the finger, Um, just something to start the process. We usually always ask, do you have an advanced directive? So not that we want you to be in the hospital, but it is a stepping stone and it is a place where you can get your mind thinking about what those decisions would be if you had to make the decisions or if you needed family to make those decisions at some point. And I I think that uh, you brought up a good point about um, things that they may have seen in their lives and their the person's reaction to that. So what we see in the movies, when CPR is done in the movies or on television, it is not what it looks like in real life. So, you know, people may, may think that that's the reality of resuscitation, which it's not. It's much more horrible than that. Um, but having that conversation, even to say, hey, look at that, that looks really terrible, don't do that to me, 
So if somebody's never put their wishes in writing, but they've said that to their wife or their daughter or whomever, that's something that the family can keep in mind when having to make these decisions for them. That they've said to us when when Aunt Sissy died and was on dialysis for 15 years in the nursing home and completely in uh, in a vegetative state of coma, don't do that to me. Then that tells us what they wanted for themselves. Um, And they based it upon their perception of suffering, the suffering that the other person is going through. I think uh, another thing is if you want something to become more comfortable, it has to start somewhere. And I I don't mean to put the blame on us, meaning the medical professionals, but I think that it should be should that is where it should start is with us. And, you know, whether you're primary care or or critical care, whether at the preventative stage or the end of life stage, at least just bringing it up to people so they can go home and say, hey, you know, someone said something about this advanced directive thing and everyone Googles things these days and then they start looking things up and, oh, well, well, what is this? So maybe that's something that could help them get the ball rolling at the least, whether you write your wishes down that day or you come back at your next visit, you could say, this is, this is kind of what I've been thinking about. Yes, and you're 100% correct that this, this is not an easy conversation and it's something that, that does need to start somewhere. And something that might kick it off is... Um, this law that Governor Murphy signed on April 12th this past year, it's called the Aid in Dying for the Terminal Ill Act. And it actually goes effective very soon on August 1st. This law allows adults who have been diagnosed with six months or less to live to get a prescription for life-ending medication. And you know they do have to get sign-offs from their, their medical care providers and they need to show that the patient has the mental capacity to make this decision. That is a very, very heavy topic as well as the information that's in this actual law for who it affects and and who really could potentially benefit from this maybe um, from having a terminal or chronic illness. Could you guys explain just a little bit further who this law impacts and what it requires them to do to participate life is just as important as you know death is and i think death is a fear that people have people are afraid of death and so when something comes up like this we automatically assume that death is bad and death is a like a a really bad thing and it's it's not i i don't know how to say that any other way like sometimes i've seen death be the most beautiful thing. You know, when I was a newer critical care nurse, I had a patient come into the ICU who he had pancreatic cancer and he gets to our unit and him and his wife said, we don't want anything done. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, he was a walking, talking human. You know what I mean? I was like, what do you mean you don't want anything done? And over the next two weeks, he ended up staying in the the ICU and I, you know, slowly watched him become you know, altered mental status, he couldn't really think, you know, but, and he eventually, you know, passed away, but it was one of the most peaceful things I had ever seen, you know, and that was his wishes. And, you know, I've seen the very other side of it where people come in and they have no idea, they don't know what they want. And then it comes to the point where their loved one is trying to decide if this person who walked in needs dialysis, and if they don't get dialysis, they're going to pass away, you know, and I see a very horrible side of death. And this new law might allow people like that first man to have a death that they, you know, I think the new term is uh, the right to die, I think. Um, And it is, it is a right. It's a right. And I know death with dignity kind of has fallen off, but it's true. You know, 
dying with dignity is a, is a thing because I can see the opposite side where people die. I don't know without dignity is the right word, but, you know, dying in a very ugly light, I guess. There, because of our technology today, we prolong life, yeah. right, in general. In doing so, we also prolong suffering if we don't keep in mind quality of life. So by prolonging suffering, whether it's in the patient, like you said, Sarah, with pancreatic cancer or someone with end-stage COPD on oxygen at home who can't even get up from and walk 10 feet without sitting down, um, we're prolonging suffering by offering a lot of these medical treatments. So I think that this law is giving those people who perceive that they're suffering the right for self-determination. They can make the decision of how they want to die, when they want to die. And interestingly, a number of years ago, I met a hospice physician from Washington State who also has a right to die law, similar to this. And she told me that uh, the majority of patients of theirs who requested um, the, uh, the medication prescriptions were in the healthcare field or lawyers. And out of that group, when the time came to actually take the medications and choose their time and day when they're dying, less than 15% of those people actually went through with it because once they realized that they could be comfortable and they're not going to suffer and their family is not burdened and they're able to be home with their loved ones, that maybe death wasn't such a bad thing and it wasn't so painful or torturous. So I think that this law will allow folks who have less than six months to live to make those decisions. And I think being scared is a big part of it. Um, I think that people who are contemplating this really need to speak to their physicians about it. And maybe if they're religious, speak to their clergy members or their friends or um, you know other folks who have been experiencing this, other support groups like dementia support groups, things like that. Um, you know, it's important to, to have that emotional support while you're contemplating this. You know, we've, we've put out a lot of heavy information today. You know, this is a topic that, like we've said, a lot of people don't want to discuss. A lot of people don't want to even contemplate the fact that we will all eventually die. We want to make sure that our, our listeners here today just understand that, you know, being prepared for end of life and having this discussion with your family, having the documentation beforehand of what you want is really prepared and, and in place in case something happens because you never know what could happen tomorrow. With that thought in mind, is there any last minute thoughts, comments that you guys would like to add to this uh, discussion that we've had today? I would say to everybody listening, make sure that you have this conversation as uncomfortable it is, as it is. And say to your kids, I want to sit down and talk to you about something very important that's very important to me, and, and start that conversation. At least if you start it and your family hears what your wishes are, then that is a gift that you give to them. They will not bear the burden of guilt of making decisions for you. They will not feel like they're deciding between life and death for you. They'll be honoring your wishes, and that is the greatest gift people can give to their loved ones. Couldn't agree more with that. Um, yes, as we've been saying, have the conversation, start the process early, as difficult as as it is, find comfort in everything that we talked about today that um, when you go through the experiences that we go through and what we see, we want this to be easier situation for people that have to go through what we see is not 
easy to go through. So talk about it. Um, again, talking is better than nothing. Um, again, even if it's not written down, just have the conversation today. Have your own beliefs first, kind of know what you what you want and what your perceptions are of certain things and what you find, you know, like quality of life and what you could live with and what you could live without. And then once you make your own decisions and formulate your own opinions, then have the conversation with someone else and maybe you can help them with their own. Thank you, Ellen, Sarah, Jamie. I really appreciate you all joining us today. And I appreciate all of those people that are listening in to us. And hopefully we'll be starting this discussion with their family and preparing to make everything easier on the loved ones left behind. The material provided through this Health You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.